Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a licensed nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Well, I'm Jerry Brainer. Uh, I, uh, I I was the uh, science editor of Muscle and Fitness for 10 years. I wrote for Flex Magazine. At this point, I think I've had approximately 7,000 articles published in the last oh. close to 40 years. And uh, I currently have my own publication. It's a uh, digital publication called Applied Metabolics. At AppliedMetabolics.com. And uh, what else can I say? <laughs> I, I, I used to compete myself, by the way. I, I competed uh, in the 70s. You know, I, I trained with Arnold Schwarzenegger at the original Gold's Gym and all that. So I'd, I'd, have a, I'd say I have about 57 years in this stuff. You know, the bodybuilding and fitness uh, type of uh, activity. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. everyone, um, if you're not familiar with Mr. Brainham, um, a lot of the co-hosts of this show, uh, you know, grew up reading his stuff in, in almost every fitness magazine you can imagine, you know, and um, editorial role, all of that sort of thing. So definitely one of the veterans we want to expose you to. Um, before we get to Jerry's origin story, because it goes it goes back into, you know, some fascinating stuff, but... I've got one listener question this week. I'm going to post this to Jerry this week, and um, maybe we'll get uh, some of the other co-hosts to chime in next week, but I want this to focus on Jerry. So here's what he says. This is from Richard. He says, just to start, uh, you guys have a great show. The information you put out is amazing. Uh, I enjoy listening. I do have a question. Uh, I'm currently weighing about 180. I'm 5'11". I'm 28 years old. Um, I'm guessing I'm about 15 to 18% body fat. I really want to get up to 200 pounds in body weight. And then he talks about how he can do uh, low rep sets with two and a quarter in the bench. He can deadlift 315, etc. But he says, I wonder um, diet-wise or calorie-wise uh, what I should be doing to get up to 200 pounds. So he wants to gain 20 pounds essentially. And then he also says, I took a look at my T-level. To me, it was alarmingly low. It was 400. I currently work midnights and burn the candle at both ends. Any tips about my T-level as well? So, Jerry, you're up. What, what would you suggest to uh, Richard here about gaining 20 pounds and something uh, comments about his T-level of 400? Well, obviously, he's going to have to increase his calories. Uh, I would say to eat you know, clean calories, increase the protein, get you know, the, the suggested range between uh, – you know, it varies depending on publication, but it seems to be between 1.6 and about 2.2 grams per kilogram. Or to make it simple, about a pound of, uh, I'm sorry, about a gram of protein per pound of body weight for goal body weight. In other words, he said he wants to weigh, was it 200 pounds, was Right, it? that's right. right. So he probably wants to go for 200 grams of protein a day. That will more than meet his protein needs. Mm-hmm. Get that in uh, uh, numerous small meals. Optimally, you want to take in uh, protein maybe every five hours, four to five hours, if possible. Uh, and, you know, as far as carbohydrates, I would say probably. It all depends. I mean, I don't have a lot of information on the guy. If he's insulin insensitive, he has to be careful with the carbohydrates because mm-hmm. you don't want to gain body fat. But, you know, if you need to gain weight, carbohydrates are pretty good. Uh, but, you know, want to have clean carbohydrates, fruits and vegetables, no refined sugars, keep the fructose down, and 
and very important also to have some dietary fat. Uh, I remember reading your article on, on essential fats, which, uh, you know, is <laughs> right. very important for bodybuilding. Uh, you want to, of course, get omega-6, uh, the two essential types of fats, omega-6 linoleic acid and omega-3, that type of thing. And, and you know, you, uh, you, you kind of, it's an individual thing. I mean, you have to experiment with the so-called macros to see what works best. But basically, the bottom line is he has to eat a little bit more, but try and eat pretty clean. Don't eat junk because it's only going to, if, even if it doesn't make you fat, it's not going to be. It's not good for your health. It's not good for your brain. So you want to eat clean. And as the second part of the question was uh, related to the low. What was it? Low testosterone the guy has. Yeah. Well, he's he's four hundred. So uh, clinically, I mean, he, I don't think he's going to get diagnosed. I mean, that to me, that doesn't look super low. But he is concerned. So. Okay. Well, you know that that's funny that you say that because uh, I, I I I noticed that he said he does shift work. Is that right? That's right. Like, yeah. That that could explain it right there because. Uh, you know, if you miss one night of sleep, they, I remember a study years ago, with I think the men in the study were of average age, maybe 19, 20 years old, which is the age when testosterone actually peaks in most men. Uh, these guys, if they if they uh, lost one night of, of a sufficient sleep, the testosterone dropped, if I remember correctly, it was about 15%. Oof. So, you know, yeah. some of his low testosterone might be related to that. I'm not, I, I wish I could give him a, uh, a solution. I mean, I'm not going to tell the guy to quit his job. But as you point out, 400 is actually not considered hypogonadal. It actually, I believe it's the it starts at 300, and some doctors consider 200, mm -hmm. well, you know, 200 or less, <laughs> right? Which is amazing to me. However, I remember writing a uh, doing some research a couple of years ago. Uh, and the subject was related to how much testosterone you actually need to build muscle, uh, and uh, this actually looked at middle-aged men. And if I remember the correctly, you had to have something like between. 500 and 800 minimal to actually build some muscle. So, you know, that gives you an idea. And, you know, I don't I don't want to tell the guy, to, how old was this guy? I don't remember his age. He's uh, 28. He's 28. He's a little young to get on testosterone replacement therapy. Agreed, but, yeah. I mean, you know, again, I'm not a doctor, so I can't prescribe, but he might look at something like perhaps maybe a little bit of a Clomid or, you know, HCG, something mild like that which will kick out his own testosterone levels. It might kick it up a little bit, enough to bring him up to that level of, let's say, 500 to, to uh, maybe all the way to 800, and that should solve the testosterone problem right there. And it'll certainly make a big difference in helping him to gain weight because, of course, testosterone supports muscle growth. Right, yeah. 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 Um, I'll tell you, Richard, my two cents here, and again, we may bring Phil in on this next week because Phil can you know, do a deeper dive than we have time for this week with the training, but... I agree with Jerry. I mean, you got to find a way to get to sleep earlier uh, rather than sleeping late the next day, right? Sleeping, going to bed as early as you can, do some kind of sleep ritual. I'm actually a fan of me melatonin or even some double-strength chamomile tea. Do something to noodle down and get to sleep if, the best you can. Um, eat. Uh, you can't go on a super low-fat, high-fiber diet, right, because that will knock about 15% off your T-levels. Uh, minimize alcohol if you do that regularly. That can take a toll on your T-levels. Um, these are all just things that are sort of nutritional lifestyle ways to address sort of what Jerry was just commenting on, something like uh, you know HCG or Clomid or something, uh, natural ways to get that T-level up a little bit. But I wouldn't fret badly about 400, but it's almost certainly the shift work. I agree 100%. So. Um, Okay, so Richard, we will we'll cover a little bit more of that next week because I want to get to Jerry's origin story. 
So, Jerry, let's let's start with um, way at the beginning. What got you interested in bodybuilding? You've obviously influenced the sport in a big way. You competed yourself. Um, where did that all start? Actually, I started as a uh, as a swimmer. I started so I was a precocious swimmer. My mother threw me in a swimming pool when I was about four. It was like sink, you know, swimmer sink. Oh, and so uh, I, I somehow I was attracted. Maybe because I'm Pisces, you know, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. But, you know, right. I, I was always attracted to swimming, so I, I, I competed as a kind of junior swimmer in the AAU back east years ago. Uh, I actually earned these life saving uh, certificates. I remember and. I won a couple of awards on the East Coast for as a swimmer. And I used to go to this little kind of, uh, 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 what is it, like a recreational center in Brooklyn, New York, where I was living. And they had an Olympic pool. That's where I used to practice my swimming. And they had a weight room. But, you know, I go. this goes back to the early 60s. And back then, you know, if you, I, I, you know, you, I don't know if you're old enough to remember, but, you know, they, they, everyone thought that swimming, I mean, uh, weight training made you stiff and slow. And mm-hmm. at, most athletes, other than maybe football players, and, and track and, and uh, field athletes were advised not to lift weights. So, you know, I used to walk right by the weight room, and I, I didn't never touched it, you know. Oh, but, yeah. But I remember I was heading for the pool one day, and uh, all of a sudden it was, like a, it was like a little corridor, I remember. There was a crowd, and I remember the crowd parting, like almost like the Red Sea. They parted because somebody was walking through. And when I looked, I saw a guy wearing uh, trunks. It was like a what they call posing trunks. Mm-hmm. This is my first actual bodybuilder I ever saw in person. Uh, I had seen Steve Reeves playing Hercules in the movies at that point. I was I was very impressed by Steve Reeves, but I wasn't really quite sure how he got his physique. Mm-hmm. You know, for all I knew he just was born like that. I, I was what? I was like 11, 12 years old. I didn't mm-hmm. know, you know. But I see this guy, and uh, he, he's walking through the crowd, and, and, uh, and I asked somebody, I said, he was very muscular. And I said, wow, look at the muscles on this guy. And I asked somebody, I said, who is that guy? And they said, that's Jerry Winnick. And, and I remember the exact words after all these years. The guy says, he's an animal. <laughs> I remember the awe in his voice and the way these people were just staring at this guy. I said to myself, wow, I mean, if, if muscles get this kind of uh, response, maybe I should look into it. So about four days later, I started going in the weight room, which was only open three times a week. But that's how I basically started. I started in this very, very tiny, tiny rate, uh, weight room. Mm-hmm. They had, I mean, the most primitive equipment you can imagine. I mean, just they had these old-style barbells and dumbbells. But what happened was I uh, I got into it, and uh, I remember uh, about a year later, I, I sent for these courses by a guy who's been on your show, Bill Pearl. I saw I, I started buying uh, bodybuilding magazines, and I, I came across an ad. He was selling courses. And I used his courses, and luckily Bill knew what he was talking about. I used the suggested routines, and I started growing like crazy, even at 13 years of age. Nice. I, and uh, I got into doing more and more. And uh, by the time I was 14, uh, I figured three times a week whole body workouts wasn't enough. Uh, I was considering going into bodybuilding competition. So I, I uh, took the subway train to Manhattan, and I came into a gym. Uh, the first gym I went to was run by a guy named Sick Klein. I don't know if you remember. Oh, yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, Sick Klein's gym was the first gym I, I saw. It was off Times Square. And I went into and, and the first thing I remember was, it was like a museum. I mean, they had these these paintings of old-time strongmen. And they had these glow barbells, the old-style glow barbells. And this little short old man comes up to me. And it turns out it was Sick Klein himself. And, and I, I said, well, I'd like to join the gym. And he, I remember he said – it's by appointment only, and it's only three times a week. 
And I said, well, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm look- that's the reason I'm looking for a gym. I have to have more. He says, well, thank you. And I left. And I, took, I walked a couple of blocks and I came across another gym called Mid-City Health Club. And that gym was open six days a week. And I joined immediately. And I trained there. I met a lot of famous bodybuilders at the time. A guy named Harold Poole, Freddie Ortez. And I really got into it. I trained there for about a year or two. And then I went back to Brooklyn. This guy named Julie Levine opened up the RJ Health Studio. And I trained there for the rest of the time I was in New York. Now, now we're heading towards the, uh, this would be the mid to late 60s. And in 1968, uh, I, 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 well, well, even before 1968, I started competing in bodybuilding when I was about 16. I entered a couple of uh, East Coast shows, I, like uh, Teenage East Coast. I won a couple of titles, and I usually placed in the top three. Uh, and then I uh, decided in 68, I, I was ready to go to college. And I, and I said to, I was so, so into bodybuilding, I was a very ardent bodybuilder. And, you know, the, I said, you know, I used to read the magazines. They had all these, uh, these, these fantastic bodybuilders living in California. I said, well, maybe I'll just go to school in California. So I moved to California at 18. I've been here ever since. Wow. <laughs> and I joined, uh, the first gym I joined out here was called Vince's Gym. I trained under, uh, Vince Garanda, famous trainer, mm-hmm. uh, very interesting person. Trained there for about a year, and that's where I met Arnold Schwarzenegger. And uh, about uh, what was it, about a year later, '69, I think it was, when I actually joined Gold's Gym in Venice. And I've been there ever since. Believe it or not, I'm still training there to this day. Wow, wow. I mean, I mean <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm probably, I would estimate that there's maybe, maybe four, maybe I don't know, three, four guys possibly that are still around that were around when I was, you know, when I joined the gym. Uh, most of them are dead. <laughs> yeah, original crew, still the diehards. Yeah, right. You know, I mean, I, 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 certainly when I go to the gym, there's nobody's been there as long as me. When I tell people I, I joined at 69, their eyes widen. They can't believe it. Yeah, and you know, I honestly, although they they may not remember a lot of the names you or I might recognize, uh, it, when you were to say something like, "Yeah, you know, I used to train with Arnold and stuff like that," I think a lot of young people they might not even believe you. You know. It's just, yeah, that's it's just, true. Because it's another era, you know. It's like they don't realize that things were. It was a different feel. And I mean, yeah. I mean, I was a kid uh, in the in the seventies, right? So I I don't remember that except through all those books, you know, all the black and white pictures and stuff. You know, a lot of the Bob Kennedy books and stuff like that. But um, yeah, that's golden era stuff. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, I mean, when you when you see the interest today. People are just dying to hear stories about this uh, golden era. You know, I mean, I, a friend of mine, uh, fa- in fact, a friend of mine from that era, he has a, a podcast, uh, uh, I'm sorry, a YouTube show. I don't know if you ever get him, Rick Drayson. Rick, uh, Rick does, uh, talks about the uh, so-called golden days at Gold's Gym all the time on his show. Oh, I have heard of that. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. So that, you know, it's, it, apparently there's a big interest in it. I mean, when we were training back then, nobody ever thought that this would be such a source of interest. In the future, you know, we just went to the gym and didn't think about it. You yeah, know? yeah. And, you know, it's funny, but uh, I think because – and we'll talk about this after the break, everyone. But because of the escalation of technology and what it's done to the physiques and all that sort of thing, you know, pharmaceutical technology, things like that, uh, it's funny. But I have a lot of, um, like, students, young men who are interested in physique. Um, physique is not quite as popular as it used to be, at, at least like in the collegiate realm. You know, a lot of people are more about things like performance and MMA and, and a lot of these other things. But there's always the 
the odd person out, guy or gal, who's interested in physique, and I'm amazed how drawn they are to the classic physique, you know, to and not necessarily the Mr. Olympia today, but what those guys, you know, the the variety of physiques, the muscular, they're still amazing physiques, you know, but how they varied so much, you know, Franco and Arnold and Zane and Platts and, you know, and they're they're fascinated by the classic stuff. And I'm kind of heartened by that, actually. So, well, I mean, a, a friend of mine pointed out there was a one, I remember one Mr. Olympia contest years ago that they, they had the guys come out where they were in silhouette, you know, before they turned the lights on. And these guys would do one of their so-called signature poses. And, you know, you could tell who it was just by their silhouette because the physiques yeah. were that different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This guy was saying how today, if they tried that, it wouldn't work because the guys most, you know, they kind of look the same. Well, they're, he, they're so heavily muscled, right? You, you smack yeah. that much mass on everything, everybody starts to look a little more similar. That's what I'm saying. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Right. Totally. Yeah. Okay, so um, let's fast forward to how did you – I mean – so that's some competitive cred early on. Uh, how do you break into the whole writing thing? Because I, I think it's safe to say because of the you know just the, the breadth of what you've written, that's where you had arguably the biggest influence as a as a bodybuilding writer. You know, a science writer, science journalist within bodybuilding. How that all come to fruition? Well, the thing is, I've always been a voracious reader. You know, just like I started swimming very early. I started reading very early, and I'm not trying to put a halo over my head and talk about what a genius I am or anything like that, but I remember reading books that were way ahead of my grade uh, level, uh, even like in, in elementary school. I was reading uh, history texts that were meant for high school and college, so you know, I've always been into reading. I love reading, and I, I, that's one of the things that has been continuous throughout my life. I'm still a voracious reader. I, I try and read about three or four books a week even now. You know, I, sometimes I just don't have the time. I try and read as much as possible. I set aside time. But, you know, when you read a lot, there's a tendency to kind of consider writing also. And I remember writing my first book when I was eight years of age. I, I wrote, I hand wrote a book about the U.S. presidents. Uh, <laughs> I wrote about every, a little biographies of every president up to the current president at that time. Who was Dwight D. Eisenhower? That's how long ago that. <laughs> right. And, uh, and I, you know, the funny thing is, Lonnie. After all these years, I could still remember a lot of facts about these presidents. I, I can, I can pull out names that the average person has no idea who they are, like Millard Fillmore, Franklin Pierce, you know, mm -hmm. Rutherford B. Hayes, and all these people. I still remember them because I, I, I researched them and wrote about them. But I, you know, I was always writing. So in the seventies. A couple of bodybuilders asked me to write, you know, kind of ghostwrite their courses. So I did that. You know, I, I ghostwrote their bodybuilding. They were selling them through the magazines. Uh, and uh, and then I, I sometimes would go up to the weeder office with these guys. And uh, some guy came up to me uh, and her, he, he was told that I do a little writing. And he said to me, uh, look, I got a job if you want to uh, uh, answer letters that are sent to Joe Weeder. Uh, we, we get thousands of letters. We'll pay you like a, a, a dollar per letter or something like that. <laughs> I figured, okay, it's an easy way to make a little extra money, and I did that. Mm -hmm. And I used to actually hand deliver the letters every two weeks. I drive up to the Weeder office. Wow! I mean, I, I this is before they had the computers. Uh, so sure. I just drive up with my, you know, I type out the responses and bring them up to the Weeder office. And and one time I ran into Joe Weeder himself, and and you know he looked at my he looked at one of the letters and uh, he said uh, he says, look, uh, why don't you write for my magazine? And that's how it, it, it began. I started writing for his magazine, 
And I remember I wrote for the very first two issues of Flex magazine back in 82. And I, you know, I wrote and then eventually I became the, they, they anointed me the science editor because I kind of veered towards science. I've always had a deep interest in science. At one time I was considering going to medical school years ago. I've always had a, uh, history and science were really my favorite subjects in school. So I started kind of on my own volition, started writing mostly science articles. I still covered the bodybuilding contest and I interviewed the bodybuilders and all that. But, uh, you know, so they, they made me the science editor and I did that for 10 years and I wrote for Flex Magazine. I wrote for Iron Man concurrently. In fact, in the late 90s, I think I was writing, if I remember correctly, for about 10 different magazines all, uh, all over the world. Wow. I yeah. And I, I wound up writing for maybe 20 to 25 was it was in the total uh, when I was at my peak, you know, as far as the uh, magazine writing in the late 90s. Uh, so that's how I got into it. And, you know, the articles I was constantly writing. So as I said, it's built up to the point now uh, where it's probably something like 7,000 articles over a period of 35 to 40 years, I'd say. I'm estimating that. Right. Yeah. Imagine the impact. I'm sure you've thought about that. But even like the ripple effect, you know, the people you influence and then they influence, it, it actually helps a body of literature like that helps define a genre, you know. Um, I, I don't know how else to say that. You know, it, it creates part of the the history and the sort of the, the parameters of you know what it entails it's um it's 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 important you know so obviously i'm I, you know i love the writing stuff myself it's surprising also because i would you know i i chose my own topics though i wasn't assigned anything i came up with my own ideas other than the bodybuilding interviews that they asked me to do you know and the contest stuff but i remember writing an article god knows how many years ago i can't even remember it was on a, a then obscure disease called fibromyalgia mm -hmm. that affected mainly women, and, and nobody had written on it. <laughs> so I knew there was an exercise connection. I figured, well, let me write one of these for muscle and fitness. Let me write on this. And I wrote on it, and that was the only time I ever got some feedback from the Weeder office. They told me a lot of women wrote letters thanking uh, them for publishing that article because a lot of the doctors weren't even familiar with fibromyalgia. Right, creating awareness. Right. Exactly. So I, I actually, I, in retrospect, I think I wrote one of the first layman's articles on fibromyalgia ever published anywhere. And it was in Muscle and Fitness, no less. Wow. You know what? And I, that's actually a good point. And I don't want to go too much on a tangent. In fact, I'm, I'd love to get you back on just to talk about the role of the editor and how gatekeepers are sort of, you know, gone these days when it comes to YouTube and self-publishing and all this stuff. But um, stuff like awareness, and we were talking before we hit the record button, everyone, it's it's important, right, that some of this kind of stuff, evidence-based stuff, creating awareness, uh, getting people turned on. Uh, science writing for the general public, it, it's not the same thing as manuscript or technical writing, you know, and it takes a certain skill set, you know, and a, and a certain style. So it, it's it's critically important. And I think now, I mean, there's something like 1,500 new papers a day coming out in the National Library of Medicine, and you, we need people to translate this. Right. For the average person. Otherwise, we're going to have this elite class of scientists who can't communicate with the lay public. We're going to have a society that's built on science and technology and no one will really understand it. It's we, we, you know, you need the kind of science writer thing. And I guess my main point was a lot of us got turned on from muscle magazines and took it in a science, uh, you know, a more formal science direction. Um, but. So often the medical establishment throughout the decades has been eager to poo-poo bodybuilders as cheesy or those fitness you know, muscle magazines. And, and yet there's a lot of the explorations and articles that bring up the awareness. 
it's hugely important, you know, and, and over the decades, I think it's been harder and harder, you know, poo-poo uh, what the bodybuilding writers are doing, especially in these evidence-based articles, because, I mean, it's, it's evidence-based. What are you going to say? No, those studies didn't happen, you know, stuff like that. So You, you raise a good point there because one of the, uh, let's say, the tenets of good writing is the, is the ability to communicate. In other words, uh, if you write something that's basically indecipherable by the average person, no matter what your level of education or expertise, you failed as a writer because the person really doesn't get the point. What's the point? You have to be able to communicate, you know, and that, like you say, is an extra skill set that might not be taught in a lot of academic environments. You know, for example, people that are getting doctorates or MDs, they're not necessarily taught uh, basic science writing. So this is something they'd have to kind of more or less go out of their way to learn or teach themselves. Uh, you know, I've seen that quite a bit. Yeah. Yep. Again, before we were started recording, everybody, we were talking about um, a planned master's degree uh, that I hope to start at my university. But science writing is going to be part of that, right? Because it's it's that critical. And you know what? Too, we talk about like um, not getting uh, you know sort of dismissed, you know, because you're you're not a you know a Harvard trained brain surgeon or something like that. There are a lot of things that these supposedly you know less legitimate bodybuilder types have brought. Uh, to awareness uh, that have had a huge impact on medicine. I mean, creatine is now being used in neurological disorders. This resistance training, period, right? When I was a kid, even when I was in, uh, in college and in grad school, like in the 90s, uh, I was like the single exemplar of a resistance trainer. Everybody would laugh. Oh, Lana, your VO2 max is like 33. You know, you're not, you don't have a huge aerobic base. You're not a marathon runner. And I'm like, well, yeah, I guess I could, pin you down and eat you for your protein content though couldn't i you know i mean there's some aspect of fitness that i'm excelling at here but the, the point being is even resistance training has gone through a, a time where like again yeah like you were mentioning earlier you it made you bulky and slow and stiff and inflexible and we just know that's that's bs i mean entire fields like exercise physiology and physical therapy are built around adaptations from resistance training you know so even that has been something that's been i think brought to the forefront because of bodybuilding oh there's no question i mean if you even if you look in the medical journals i mean they're actually doing articles on on uh, analyzing bodybuilding training and i mean it i mean this is something you never saw years ago i mean it's almost uh it's almost gone full circle now yeah. where science is starting to recognize some of the credibility behind this as a separate activity and of course weight training which was uh years ago they would tell people the doctors would say that you know, don't lift weights. It causes high blood pressure. It's bad for you. All this stuff is right out the window now. It's been completely disproven. Yeah. Where pro proper, uh, a properly designed weight training program is extremely healthy and essential for health because now they recognize the conditions such as sarcopenia, the loss of muscle mass with age, where weight training is an essential component in preventing that. Yep. In other words, the bottom line is that weight training is for everybody, like Arnold likes to say, it's true. I mean, if you don't do some weight-bearing exercise as you age, you're going to be in very big trouble health-wise. Yep. I think it's the natural self-experimentation that a lot of power lifters or bodybuilders will do, try new supplements or, or drugs or whatever it is, uh, and it, that simultaneously made them feel less than legitimate, but at the same time, it broke new ground in a way that, like you said, slowly became evidenced you know in controlled more ethical kinds of you know venues um 
but, but yeah, change the way we think. Um, okay. Now, after let's go to break here because we're running low on time. But we're going to talk about some of that self-experimentation, actually, everyone. So that's one of the things I wanted to have Jerry on. We um, just basically talk about anabolic steroids and performance-enhancing meds, and are they required to be a champion bodybuilder? So we'll be back in just a minute. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what, uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit uh, royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. <laughs> All right, everyone, we're back. Uh, it's Lonnie, and we've got Jerry Brainham, longtime writer and editor in the bodybuilding world, on the show with us. We're going to talk about um, anabolic steroids and performance-enhancing meds and um, being a champion bodybuilder. Uh, in fact, I want to start by saying, and listeners, you all know this, of course, don't construe any of this as medical advice. We're not physicians. We're not trying to be. But, you know, th this is one of those elephants in the room that maybe back in the 50s and 60s, 70s, the general population, they weren't quite as aware that the physiques were built, you know, with an element of pharmacy. <laughs> and I think nowadays they are. But that doesn't mean the general public's perceptions 
of performance enhancing meds are accurate nowadays either. You know, it's almost like we've we've come too far in the other way, uh, swung the pendulum the other way, and now we think they're responsible for everything, you know, good and bad, when you see somebody that's very muscular. But let's start with a definition, Jerry. So um, when we talk about our uh, is pharmacy necessary to be a champion bodybuilder, um, define champion bodybuilder for us. Well, a champion bodybuilder, there's a lot of elements that go into it. I mean, you hear the frequently uh, tossed term genetics. There's a definite genetic element, uh, broad shoulders, long muscle bellies. Uh, I'd say uh, also I throw in smaller and less dense fat cells where you don't have hypertrophic, hyperplastic, obesity. Mm-hmm. We have supposed to the enlarged fat cells. It's a little bit harder to get you know, uh, defined. There have been champion body blood started out as fat guys. Well, I should say obese. Uh, I don't want to, you know, be uh, use any any words that might offend anybody. But the thing is that uh, most of the uh, bodybuilding champions that I've and I've interviewed thousands over the years, it seems that they usually started uh, uh, usually thin uh, or just, you know, not really. Very few of them start as as obese fat guys. There are there are exceptions to the rules, but generally it's a, it's a kind of a body shape that you know, small waist, broad shoulders. Like I say, long muscle bellies. Uh, you know, kind of a shape that's pleasing to the eye. Of course, as the, as the old adage goes, beauty is nice of the, uh, of the uh, beholder. What I mean by that is, like, you look at the current bodybuilders today, and at the pro professional level, the guys are very massive. It's that's not everyone's cup of tea to throw another cliche out here. But the truth is that some people like that look. I mean, and others don't. Others are repulsed by it. Uh, they like the the bodybuilders of, of let's say the seventies when I competed where they were smaller, but they were more muscularly defined, and they looked basically more human. Yes. So, you know, it, it, it's a certain, again, it, it depends on the individual, but there is a certain type of symmetry and balance and proportion. Like if you look at the, the, the uh, criteria for judging bodybuilders, they look at symmetry, proportion, muscle size, uh, you know, general appearance, that type of thing. It has to be within a kind of a certain narrow range in order to make it in bodybuilding. Uh and I, I also I wrote an article recently for my newsletter about you know the the it was kind of technical I, I I had to go into some really technical stuff which I tried to really you know make it readable and understandable but I was talking about you know what the, what is the difference between hard gainers and fast gainers those why do some people make a lot of very rapid progress and others just they do everything right they just seem seem they can't seem to put much muscle on. And, you know, as part of that, I kind of went into these attributes of what constitutes a championship bodybuilding physique. And I pointed out, I didn't want to discourage you, and I, I pointed out, this doesn't mean that you can't get a really fantastic physique. Anybody could. I'll make a flat statement. Anybody who, who engages or begins a correct, judicious weight training program and a good nutrition program can make spectacular progress. Anybody. I'm talking about anybody. But they might not have, let's say, the genetic attributes to go all the way into the professional level or the elite level of bodybuilding, which, to tell you the truth, from what I could gather, it only really attracts a small percentage of people. Anyway, not everyone wants to be a professional bodybuilder. Right. I would say most people don't. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, Alani, if you look at the studies, I'm sure you've seen them. I, I was, I, I mean, when I first saw this a couple of years ago, I was shocked to see. I mean, it might, it might be surprise a lot of your listeners. The great, the biggest or the greatest users of, of, of anabolic steroid drugs are not athletes and bodybuilders, but just recreational exercises like, you know, 
office guys or lawyers or the, just average guys and women that just want to look muscular. And they think that you have to use steroids to get that look. I mean, they, they look on the Internet. They see all these uh, these forums and stuff where they're talking about, you know, take this to get that. And this steroid produces this amount of definition. This steroid causes you to look fat. And they get it in their head that the only way to really have an impressive muscular physique is you have to use drugs, which is not correct. Yeah. Now, now let me let me amend that by saying, to, on the professional level, this is you want to put in italics. On the professional level, yes, you do need to use drugs. There's no way around it. There's no such thing as a drug-free professional bodybuilder. That animal doesn't exist. They kind of went extinct. I'd say about 25 years ago. Well, now, but, okay. Let me let me um qualify that then because uh, there's been a big trend and. I'm taking nothing away from um, the you know the diehard natural bodybuilders out there because there's even professional level um, at least on, of some type out there right now. When I grew up, I, like you, I, I mean I agree 100 percent. Right, you are not going to go much above uh, like you're not going to get to the national stage, let alone turn IFBB pro completely drug free that's just it's just not going to happen. There's a re a physiological reality that. T hormones of different hormones underwrite tissue mass. <laughs> that's that's how it works, you know. But but what what would you say about these natural pros these days? Are they champions in the same way? How do you look at the 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 natural movement? Because it used to be when again like when I was really probably my biggest you know in the nineties. I'm a, I'm a five nine meatloaf. I was like two hundred thirty pounds, you know, and. When I saw these magazines, the natural mags, they were almost preachy, you know, like just very, very preachy. Like you can be, you can look like Lee Haney. You just have to want it more and, and train harder. And that's simply false, you know. And yeah. the more I, I went to school, the more I got turned off by those messages. Uh, but I'm not sure that the that natural bodybuilding is quite that um, oddball niche that maybe it once was, but – I'm I'm just not that up on you know there are so many different federations now these natural pros what's your what's your take on them being champion bodybuilders? Well, you know, you always have the outliers. Like it gets back to the genetic thing. I mean, I've come across maybe you have too, but I've come across men over the years and women where you know they they haven't even begun weight training and they're already pretty muscular and these people don't even know what a drug is. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, who knows what they're – you know, you don't really examine these people. and Maybe they're uh, null for myostatin. Who knows what the difference – but some of these guys have surprisingly muscular. Now, it, you know, they could be successful natural bodybuilders, and, but the sad part is depending on their level of muscularity, nobody's going to believe that they're natural. I mean if these guys are really defined and cut and all that and, and fairly big, they'll never be as big as the pros on steroids. Right. But I guess that's my point, yeah. In other words, nobody – they can preach up and down and, and you know, and say, I'll take live – nobody's going to believe them. I mean – but the funny thing is I believe there are outliers. Yes, they're rare, but there are people that can – you know, they're, they can be very strong. They can lift very heavy weights. And, of course, you know, there's the overload principle. You lift heavy, you could grow and this and that. Although there's – you know, I don't know if you've seen. There's a little controversy where they're saying strength and muscle size – are not necessarily, you know, the same thing. You know, there's a couple sure. of physiologists yeah. saying that. But the point is that these guys really respond very well. But generally speaking, what, what you said is true. 
uh, on the elite professional level, forget about it. I mean, uh, as I said, New York, forget about it. (laughs) It's not going to happen unless you take drugs, which is why in recent years they have, as you say, all these new divisions of physique division. Uh, what is the other one? Though I, I don't know what they call the guys with the board, with the board shorts. Maybe that's oh, that's physique. Then yeah. they have the classic bodybuilder where they're bringing back the kind of seventies look, where they have these instead of having like the jockstrap trunks, they're having they're wearing like normal like posing trunks like we wore back in the seventies. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah. this and these guys are not as big, you know. In other words, yeah. they they you know they're not nearly as big as the pros, but I think they're doing it because. If you only have the professional bodybuilders, people will be discouraged because they more or less know, as you know, more people are cognizant of the fact that there's a steroid and drug component involved. And a lot of people will say, you know, it's not worth it to, you know, to take all these drugs to get that big. And who knows? I could probably never get that big anyway. I don't have the genetics, they say. But, you know, by opening up all these other divisions, now you, you know, you open up a, a greater pool of people that can say, yeah, yeah, I, I can, yeah, I can weigh 200 pounds and compete. I, I can see that. But here's the funny thing. If you go, if you pull the curtain behind like they did in The Wizard of Oz, you find that many of these so-called, I don't know what to call them natural, but let's say, the, you know, the lower levels like the physique competitors and the uh, classic physique these guys are taking as many drugs as the pros. Yeah. And you know what? To me, that's where, where things get really unethical. You know, like yeah. I, I hate the word natural because, God, take a couple of philosophy classes and wrestle with that one. But right. the, but the point being is, yeah, I mean, if you get – I mean, they maybe they should say – anabolic steroid free uh, certainly not drug free um you know a lot of these guys using large amounts of you know um ephedrine hydrochloride and things like that you know like those old eca stacks and because i mean when you can't in my opinion if you're not going to get much bigger than about 200 pounds in shape right when you're natural i mean really in shape um, stage ready uh, over 200 pounds that's going to be a real challenge if you're natural but the yeah. but the point being is if, if you can only get so big because of hormonal realities getting uber shredded is where a lot of that goes i mean these guys you know strided glutes now they might only weigh 165 pounds you know when they're on stage it's very dramatic looking it's kind of amazing looking really but much much smaller but the point being is yeah there's a lot of things it's it's very it makes me very hesitant right because uh, i've competed in natural competitions and open competition in both and to me it's yeah the guy who comes in if he's actually using anabolics in a natural show that's the cheater you know right. because shame on you like what kind of that's like you know bringing a gun to a knife fight and walking away victorious and feeling good about yourself you know right. i i just don't that's where things i think get really sort of cowardly in a sense but and you can get into a semantic article, like you just pointed out, this thing about drug-free and natural and all that. And, uh, you know, I mean, like you say, even if the goal isn't to be super massive, if you're resorting to substances, as you pointed out, ephedrine or clenbuterol, which, is, of course, is a drug, uh, but you're not taking steroids, that doesn't make you natural. Right. You know, it's, yeah. it's a kind of a broad definition. I mean, uh, you know, I mean... Like I say, you know, if you really want to be honest, you'd have to categorize them into anabolic drug users and other drug users. You know, I mean, I was surprised to learn uh, years ago, a lot of these, if you look at the distaff side, the females, a lot of these women uh, who are, uh, what are they, fitness competitors and mm-hmm. uh, bikini and all this. I mean, I, I've gotten some, people have sent me some of the programs 
that they have these coaches that work they work with them, you know, these advisors. And I don't know what the backgrounds of these guys are, honestly. Most of them I've never heard of, but I've seen some of their programs. And you know, they have these women on clenbuterol, on thyroid. Thyroid, <laughs> women, yeah, not natural. You know, right. they maybe they're not taking anabolic, and they can't take anabolic steroids because they're actually judged down if they show. You know, they got rid of female bodybuilding basically on the law. On the law, there's no Miss Olympia anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you compete in bikini or fitness or that kind of thing, if you have too much muscle, you're judged down. So they 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 avoid anabolic steroids, but as you said, they're taking stuff to reduce body fat because they do want to look as lean as possible. They want that lean kind of muscular but not overly muscular look. Yeah, the, so, the floating target that women are expected to hit is got to be frustrating as hell because for men, natural or open, being as big and as hard as you can get, it's a it's sort of a, a one, you know unidirectional thing. And with women, it's this floating target. This year, I'm I'm a little too hard or too big, and uh, oh no, I got too soft, and oh my goodness, I don't even know how you know that's got to be incredibly hard to to be a competitor in those. And we both know a lot of those, uh, bi- even the bikini competitors. I mean, they're more muscular than old Miss Olympia, like the in like the Rachel McLish era. You know, I mean, w- there's been this. Up calibration of ev- of every level, right? Where even the, you know, it, I mean, back in the day, I mean, from like you're talking about all the way back into the '60s, the bikini competitors, uh, there was no, you didn't necessarily have some intense training program and diet coach and all this kind of stuff and drug use. The bikini thing was, you know, a much softer thing, and now even the bikini competitors are pretty ripped. You know, I, I kind of liked, uh, I looked a little bit, uh, I watched a little online of this year's, uh, what was it, the Olympia competition where they had the bikini and the fitness and all that, and physique women, and, and uh, I noticed that they get seem to get more muscular every year. Yes. I mean, yep. now it's starting to show vascularity on, on these, uh, what do they call them, the, uh, uh, not the bikini, there's another one. Just uh, figure, physique, figure, yeah. Figure. That's what I was trying to say, figure. Yeah. The figure women that theoretically are not really looking for large muscles, some of the winners, they have like the vascularity through their deltoids and their arm. And I'm thinking, whoa, wait a minute. I mean, you know, that's, and, and you and I both know, you know, getting back to what you're saying about women, they have, it's, it's different than men because women's body are geared to having higher levels of body fat. So it's a real uphill battle to achieve that type of look where, you know, these women feel that they have to go beyond mere diet and exercise. They do have to resort to what they call cutting drugs like clenbuterol, ephedrine or whatever. Thyroid is very popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, they feel they can't get that necessarily uh, that necessary look. Almost corollary to men in the pro- uh, professional ranks who say, hey, look, and this has been said to me, by the way. What guys have told me, uh, you know, off the record, Jerry, I don't want to take all these steroids, but if I don't, how am I going to compete in the Mr. Olympia? I'd place dead last. And they're telling the truth. Yeah. They're not, they don't really, they know the dangers of the steroids, but they, they feel they have no choice. Uh, otherwise, it's not, a, you can't even come close to a level playing field without using them. Uh, right. And, you know, again, I want to re- reiterate to everybody. I know we have young listeners, right? We are not condoning these things. We're trying to talk about the history of this, right? And some of the behind the curtains, as Jerry said, you know, realities of the, of these things. I mean, it, Jerry, you remember the one year, I think it was like ni- early 90s, they actually drug tested the Mr. Olympia. 
and, I was there. And, oh, right? And everyone was so soft, and they were smaller. <laughs> there was one individual, and I'm going to withhold his name. It, start, he, it starts with an M. <laughs> and there was all this talk that he was on masking drugs because he was the only person who was as big and hard as in the past. And But the point is almost everybody was – visually aesthetically radically different and it, it was almost like a uh, a double check that yep these things are to look like that at least they're simply required you know i, I could tell, I, I could tell you a funny story about that uh right after that show the guy who was running professional bodybuilding time a guy named wayne demilia who's now running another federation i'm not sure which one but i heard that he's running but anyway uh i, I remember talking to him right after the show and I said, Wayne, because uh, he was uh, he was running professional bodybuilding at the time. I said, so how did it go with this drug testing? I said, is this going to be a regular thing? He says, absolutely not. And this is off the record, Jerry. I said, well, okay, well, what are, you, what are you trying to tell me? He says, look, he says, you saw the guys. You saw the quality. You see how much the quality was down? I said, yeah, I didn't kind of notice that. He said, if we remove the drugs the bodybuilding is going to die professional because nobody wants to look at average looking bodybuilders. They're looking for freaks. And the only way you can get a freak look is to use drugs. So, you know, between me and you, we're not going to be doing drug testing. <laughs> I said, wow. what about Ben Weeder? He's trying to get, you know, bodybuilding Olympics and you have to be drug. He said, that doesn't apply to professional bodybuilding. We're not trying to get in the Olympics. Yeah. And you know so, what too? We, you know, we talked about bodybuilding being um, sort of, um, on the on the front edge of pushing the envelope of things, it's interesting to see uh, journalists in big magazines uh, actually speculating. You know, what if there were open competitions and you, we let people? Because as you're pointing out, nobody nobody's going to show up and watch a bodybuilding competition where everybody just sort of looks like I don't know um, uh, a wrestler esque physique. And I mean, like you know, I'm talking like high school wrestler. You know, they're muscular, but. You know, almost like not that different from who's in the crowd. And a lot of these um, sports journalists are, you know, they're speculating on whether it's hitting home runs or whatever it might be. Kind of, you know, what if there were open competitions? Maybe we should just let athletes just go for it. It's their choice. And now legalities aside, right, it's important. Everyone, and Jerry and I know this, but every you have to understand these are scheduled drugs, a lot of these things. They are absolutely federal crimes to even possess. So you don't – we're not suggesting that this is a good thing, but it's on the speculation part, right, of the, like the sports – sociology if you will of all this they're speculating about what if we just removed all this right because of this it's this technology this escalation right it's like escalation of warfare you know spears become guns guns become tanks it's been like that in a lot of ways in bodybuilding up to these very complex you know polypharmaceutical stacks and things like that um but i guess the point is you know, they're talking about what if we just let everybody go nuts if they wanted to be an, an open, you know, division, let's say, in the NBA. Um, and I'm thinking, well, bodybuilders were critiqued for years for having that distinction, right? Um, Drug-free versus open, you know, competitions. I mean, they've all, they've been experiencing, you know, powerlifting as well. So um, it's one of those things, I, again, I think the bodybuilders have been pushing the, the forefront of that stuff. You know, it's also kind of comparable, if you think about it, to baseball, professional baseball, because you might remember the home run derby there in the late 90s where, uh, what was his name again, uh, Sousa, and what was the other guy's name who set the record? Not Barry Bonds, this other guy, I can't remember his name. 
But anyway, this guy had huge forums. His brother was a bodybuilder and this and that. And Mark McGuire? Is that what you're yeah, Mark, Mark McGuire. Remember the controversy where he opened his locker and there was a bottle of androstenone, which was then a pro-hormone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they, they suddenly got this controversy with the sports writers. Oh, that's why he's hitting all these home runs, because he's on steroids. Right. Remember that? And I was go- I remember going to Gold's Gym one day, and there was a crew from Fox West Sports, and they came over to me because somebody told them I knew about steroids. <laughs> I don't know why they said that, but they came up to me, and they said, can we ask you a couple of questions? This is right at the time of the Home Run Derby in the late 90s. They said, you mind if we ask you a couple of questions on camera? I said, sure. So the first question they said to me was, uh, you know, you, you heard about how they found that Mark McGuire is using this steroid. And I corrected him. I said, wait a minute. He was using androstenone, which is medically a androgen. Uh, and it actually is a steroid, but it's not really a commercial anabolic steroid drug. They said, well, it's a, it supposedly builds testosterone. They were trying to say it's the same thing. And they said, well, well here's the point, though. Uh, don't you think that without using this, that he would kind of be an average a player who couldn't be hitting these all these home runs every other day. I said, boy, hold on a second. I happen to know that Mark McGuire, the first time he ever went out to bat as a little leaguer, he hit a home run the very first time he played baseball. <laughs> and at, at something like 13 years of age, he set a little league record in home runs. There's a lot more to hitting home runs than, you know, big muscles or taking steroids. There's hand-eye coordination. There's a lot of factors. That Skill, go into it. right. Yeah, and to say... That guys like Sammy Sousa or or you want to throw in Barry Bonds, who was on an extensive anabolic program, from what I understand, and and you know and and uh, uh, again I keep forgetting what was his name again, Mark McGuire. I mean, you know, to, to write it off to steroids. Yes, steroids gave him the, probably the power to hit those long home runs and stuff like that. But then again, then you look at a guy like Babe Ruth, who hit what sixty homers in the twenties. And he lived on hot dogs. Nobody knew what a steroid was when he, you know, so there's a certain amount of skill involved. So, you know, my my, my point with this antidote is to say that, you know, I think there's a problem where a lot of people write off everything, as we said earlier, to steroid use. And, And I'm not saying steroids are an important part. And there's a corollary to this. As you said, you know, we don't want to prescribe, but I think it's a wrong impression to say that you can't achieve really good results without using drugs. And I think that's that's a very, very much of a, a huge uh, mistake made by, you, you, like I say, you look at these surveys where all these white-collar workers and people have no interest in competing, they're all using steroids. They're using some dangerous ones like Trenbolone and all this. And, and the thing is, they, they have this in their mind. If you ask them, they think you can't get abdominals and you can't get decent muscles. There's no way to do it without steroids. That is just not true. Yeah. Because I did it myself. That's right. how I know. Yeah. I was I was literally a drug free body bodybuilder. Now even there you have to uh, have a little uh, atterisk because I have asthma, so I was taking asthma drugs. That's the only drugs I used when I competed bodybuilding. Yeah. And it turns out you probably know the research. Some of these apparently, like they just came out with a study, terbutaline, uh, oral terbutaline actually has anabolic effects. Can make you can stimulate muscle growth. I I used a tablet form of tribunaling years ago. Did it produce muscle? I don't think so. I don't think so, actually. But my point being that, you know, I didn't have particularly good genetics. I think that most people, if they, again, if you're really serious, you train right, you don't stay on a cell phone for 20 minutes between each set, 
you know, and, and you, you, you do full range exercise, you follow a good solid nutrition program, you do a little research on to find out the best supplements, what you need. I think anyone could make near spectacular results. But again, on the elite level, to, you know, to, for pro bodybuilding, as you said earlier, there's no way around it. You, you, you know, you just, you can't walk on stage, you know, what, 5, 10, nearly 300 pounds? And that, it's not going to happen. No, I always say that, right? I always say 5'9", 250 with like 2% body fat is not a natural state of being. You just have to understand that, you know. But to your point, I, you know, we started with definition of a champion. Um, I think I agree with you 100%. Anybody can build fantastic physiques, enormous strength. Uh, I think we just need to recalibrate what champion is, right, um, for people who, if you're not on drugs, then y you can't have your calibration meter set at Mr. Olympia 2018. That's not going to work. You have to actually appreciate what the human body can do, you know, with, you know, whether it's nutrition, sleep, lifestyle, the right kind of training. These things can take you very, very far. Enough that you can be, you can have that kind of freaky respect that you talked about, that animal, you know, that walks by. You can really do that. <laughs> You know, but I think we need to recalibrate a little bit, and you can't be looking. And again, I think that's why a lot of the young men that I talk to, they they're drawn toward Frank Zane kinds of looks because it seems somehow within reach, you know, right. and, and not not the GH belly, you know, two hundred ninety pound monster. Um, they, they don't even a lot of them don't even want that, you know. No, that's, that's what I was saying earlier. That's why they have these new uh, divisions in bodybuilding physique and, and uh, classic physique. Because you know they, they, these guys top off at what two ten maybe two fifteen, that's what the guys weighed back in the seventies. You know in Arnold's they most of them weighed about. You know I myself I competed at five eleven. I weighed two uh, two ten was my contest weight. Mm -hmm. I always tell people when they ask me, well, what do you think you would have weighed if you used steroids? I said even considering the relatively uh, tiny steroid programs we, back in the compared to today, it's almost infantile compared to what the uh, guys use today. But even Considering that, I, I estimate I probably could have competed at about 235 if I took steroids. Mm -hmm. But I don't regret it. I don't regret it nope. because, you know, I got into bodybuilding for health. I didn't go, you know, I, I never had thoughts about being Mr. America. I just wanted to be healthy. And it made sense to me, even though weight training wasn't, wasn't considered that healthy when I got into it. To me, I, I just had a gut feeling that weight training is healthy. If you maintain your muscular system, it's got to be good for you. And that's how I got into it. Right. So, you know, I had to make the decision at one point, you know, to go any further in bodybuilding, I have to start using the drugs like the other guys because I, I, I started competing at a level where I was getting like third, second and thirds to guys who were winning, who I knew were on drugs. Oh, you know, Jerry, I'll tell you, one of the, the kind of crucible moments for me, because I always try to pit my education against you know, users, basically, when I competed in open competitions. And that's why I sort of capped out at, like, the regional level, like like you. I would I would want to be competitive, place in the top three. Uh, but in these open competitions, I remember once a guy came in, and um, his skin is like pink cellophane. He's talking about his GH and his thyroid use behind backstage and this and that. And, I mean, he was actually a very nice guy, kind of a family man, all this kind of stuff. He was really kind of debunking a lot of the dirty things about, you know, pharmaceutical users. But, but I digress. 
he was simply making decisions that I wasn't willing to make. So, right. you know, he walked away with that class and actually went on to win the Nationals that year. And I'm like, good on you, man. I mean, as far as his physique quality, he's like a head shorter than me, weighs the same that I do. He's much leaner. You know, he's got striations on his freaking serratus muscles on his rib cage. You know, and I'm like, I can't do that. So, right. you know, when you compete in an open competition, that's just sort of the reality of it, I think. Well, you know, it's an individual choice. I mean, it depends on how far you want to go with it. I mean, uh, like I say, I, I think you get a really fantastic physique just, you know, with nutrition. And I, I'm not trying to lie. I'm telling you the truth because if I didn't do it myself, maybe I'd be a little bit more, uh, you know, skeptical about it. But I did it. I mean, I, you could look at photos of me online when I competed. I, I had a pretty good physique with no drugs whatsoever. Yeah. I just weight trained. I trained very hard. And I, I, I took, you know, I, I didn't take a lot of supplements back then. But, you know, I, I tried to follow a good diet and all that, and I, I studied and learned whatever I could at the time. And I think anybody is capable of doing it. It all depends on how far. I, I just think, in my opinion, that too many people – let me give you a flat statement to really clarify what I'm trying to say. Unless you really want to compete on an elite level, you know, like go all the way, let's say, to national, international levels of bodybuilding, I don't really think there's any real – I think it's almost stupid to take drugs. Because you're kind of risking your health for something that you could you could probably get ninety percent of it just by diet and training alone. I don't know if you agree with that. Oh, no, but, Jerry, there's no doubt. I mean, you see a lot of these guys; they're just all they want to do is wear tank tops and go clubbing, you know, and go party and drink. And they, yeah, like you said, just recreational use. We had Rick Collins on; he's a bodybuilder lawyer, right, in the industry, of course, and. He's talking about just what you said. You know, that's where most of the use happens, this sort of just recreational. And like you said, sometimes it's toxic. These these idiots, you know, little idiots are taking all kinds of toxic stuff, and they don't even have any competitive aspirations. It's completely recreational, and it's the kind of stuff that's just, like you said, it's just you're, you're actually damaging your health when you, you know, you do some of this crazy self-experimentation and whatnot. And so It doesn't make any sense to me. Why would you want to take something – this stuff is not benign, no matter what they say online. I mean, I see statements uh, where in some of these, I don't really look at them much anymore, but I used to see statements like, oh, they exaggerate the dangers of steroid. Where are all the bodies? Where are all these guys dropping dead from taking drugs, the anabolic drug? You know, th that's a very stupid statement because things could be happening in your body you're not even aware of. It's just starting to come out now in the medical journals. For example, long-term steroid use, they now know does cause structural heart damage. That's going to blow up in your face when you get older. Right. And, of course, like, as you pointed out earlier, some are much more toxic than others. There's a lot – there's many things that are mixed into this, this can of worms. But you're right. There's no doubt. That you could see, especially a lot of the modern guys, their career longevity is so short. They have damaged, scarred kidneys and all this other stuff. And, and again, I'm, I'm not going to make – blanket statements, you know, of judgments about good, bad, because to act like uh, performance-enhancing drugs are just one thing is, is foolish. But at the same time, there's no doubt. A lot of this stuff, like the homeostatic problems that, that happen much later, like you're hypothyroid and hypogonadal for the rest of your life because, you you know, you were just stupid for like a couple of years, something like that. So well, I know a couple of uh, elite bodybuilding champions that are uh, on statin drugs, they have to take uh, uh, hypertension drugs. They have high blood pressure. I mean, their competitive days are long behind them, but they have to take these drugs the rest of their life. So, you know, they, there's obviously some damage. And, again, I'm not trying to, you know, get on a stand and start preaching uh, like I'm an anti. I'm not really anti-steroid. My, my whole point here is 
I don't understand. This is just me speaking. I, I mean, if you really want, if you think you have good genetics and you want to go all the way to the elite levels of bodybuilding competition, uh, no matter what division it is, you know, you know, and you want again, it's an individual thing, and you want to take drugs to reach it. I wouldn't condemn you. That's your choice, you know. But my point is, if you're not going to do that, and like I say, all the surveys show the majority of, of steroid users are these guys that just want to look good. Like yeah. you say, they go to the club. That to me is insane. I don't understand that. And and you got to look, where are they getting these drugs? Most of the time, they're not even getting them from MDs. Oh, they're no. They're not getting them from sure. the pharmacy. They're going to the damn black market. You don't know what you're getting. I've seen studies, 50%, they, when they seize the drugs and drug rates, 50, more than half of them are mislabeled. They don't have the drug, the, the, the right. same, the drug that, like, if one says testosterone, will have decadurablet. Or and, nothing, and, right? Yeah, or, you know, they have like heavy metal contamination. Yeah. I remember reading about one Australian guy who, uh, he took a, uh, he, he bought some steroids online. I think it was Trembolone. And it turned out it had so much arsenic in it. This guy was a healthy 31 year old. Oh guy. my God. It killed him. Killed he died. Him. Yeah. He died from bike st- I Just mean, from dirty. Again, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I apologize if I sound preachy here. But honestly, and I'll make a flat statement again. If I were competing today and I, you know, wanted to go on the elite level, and I don't, honestly, I don't think I have the genetics for it anyway, but let's say just theoretically I was doing that. I don't think I, I would not get steroids uh, from black market. I, I just wouldn't do it I, because I, I happen to know it's, it's, it's like a, it's like a roulette table. It's like, what's that thing where they the Russian roulette, right? I mean, yeah. you, you might, you might be getting real drugs. Or you might be getting contaminated drugs, or you might get underdosed drugs, or I mean, fake, right? Entirely yeah, fake, and, whatever. And, and my point in, in talking about this again, not to be preachy, is the fact that these guys who don't aren't, aren't even going to compete. They're getting the steroids from these black. They're risk. They they they're taking so many health risks. And for what? Yeah. For what? To look good, to have abs. Yeah. Right. Oh, give right. me a break! Come on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll tell you what we are. Um, <laughs> we're out of time before i before we uh, close this one out uh can you remind us again uh where people can follow up with you more because you're mentioning youtube obviously you have tons of writing uh as we wind down fill us in about where people can hear more from you well i do have a youtube channel of course that you know the videos are completely free every tuesday i put on a new video and uh, you know so it's on the jerry brainham channel just go to youtube and do a search for the jerry brainham channel you know, I have, I think, at last, I think I have now about 141 videos on, on the channel. And I did another 72 on another site. Uh, I don't even want to mention them because I don't want to get commercial here. But the thing is, I will slightly get commercial by mentioning that I retired from bodybuilding writing about almost five years ago. And, and since then, I've been writing my own digital newsletter. It's called Applied Metabolics. Okay. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and if I say so myself, as I said, I, I've been writing for about 40 years. This is the best writing I've ever done. I mean, it, it's a labor of love because I, I put out like 40 to 50 pages every month, all evidence-based. A guy like you would really appreciate it because you'd see, you'd, you'd, you'd be able to see right away there's no BS, there's no bro science in there. Uh, but it's a combination of current science, evidence-based science, and uh, the addition of my own 57 years. That's what really makes it different is the fact I put in a lot of my own experiences where you know I could steer people in the right direction uh, you know, as far as exercise, diet, and general health. So, you know, anyone who's interested, it's it's AppliedMetabolics.com, you know, and, and I even answer questions, brief, you know, subscribers, 
If they want to send me brief questions, I, I answer only subscribers. I can't do that for everyone. I don't have the time, you know. But I mean, uh, I personally think I got stuff there for everybody. That's the things that that's the features of my newsletter. All right, good stuff. Well, yeah. thanks. You know, I um, I'll tell you what, we, we, I may have to uh, tap your experience again in the future. Well, maybe we'll go back and forth on email a little, find some cool topics because this it's. It's very much up my alley, and like I said, some of our listeners have been requesting stuff about, you know, can you talk about the muscle mass and the bodybuilding side of things, you know, a bit more? And obviously, you're you're a goldmine for that stuff, so. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, and everyone, we're going to catch up with you next week. Uh, we'll get all the other co-hosts back from their travels, and we'll pick it up from there. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.